Support the podcast by buying a copy of The Force of Destiny by Eric Kent Edstrom, available on ebook from Apple, Kobo, Amazon, of course, and Barnes and Noble, also available in paperback. Chapter 3 From Seed to Blade. Highest of till Manson Flay was not satisfied, not at all. He allowed some of his agitation to show by sucking in the skin beneath his lower lip. This formed his mouth into a pursed frown he had practiced in the looking glass. The effect, when matched by the heaviness of his brow and his hard blue eyes, was a perfect expression of displeasure. Anyone who saw that face knew not to bother him with trifling affairs, and so Dunhilne did not speak. The man stood in the sun, face streaming with sweat. His robes were thick wool, inappropriate for this climate. He had certainly climbed from the depths of the arena to bring bad news. That was the only sort of news a man like him would deliver in person. Seeker Yan also stood by, hawkish face and eyes intense with righteous fervor. He did not sweat, but merely stood erect, waiting to be addressed. Both men would have to wait until Highest Flay brought his own mind to heal. Sometimes it took a while. His temper renewed itself each morning, and like a hunting hound, it needed daily exercise to tire it out. Letting his anger run had become part of Highest Flay's morning ritual. He did so by coming to the garden tower roof. He did not enjoy the sea breezes on his face, and he certainly did not enjoy the view. He flicked a glance at one of his personal favored, who stood near to him holding a shade pole so that his fair skin would not burn. The woman's robes were sheer, sleeveless, and hugged her figure. It was a great honor for her to serve him, and her appreciation made her pliant to his will and his other needs. She paced with him as he moved along the parapet, keeping him well shaded with the span of sailcloth stretched on a hooped frame atop the pole she carried. It was a hundred-pace walk to the wall that barred Flay from continuing around the roof to make a complete circuit. On the other side of that wall lay Paul's fifth of the tower. Sneering, he turned and went the other direction until he was once again stopped by a wall, this one demarcating the beginning of Ori's fifth of the tower. Highest Flay paced back and forth between these two walls, like one of those caged and restless wolves the acrobat shows had brought with them when he was a boy in Flissen. He wanted the whole circle. He stopped at the midpoint of his arc and looked over the landscape. He had been born far to the north in a land of mountains, goats, and snow. By contrast, Garden Island was a paradise of blue water, fruit, and balmy air. But the vista was spoiled by the two diverging walls, continuations of the ones hemming him in. At ground level, they shot away from the tower, climbing hills and descending into vales as they made their way to the sea. They defined the lands of Till's Tower on the island. He occupied a slice of cake. The idea made him want to spit. Till was the father, the patriarch, the one god. Ori and Paul should not have dedicated ways. 
They should not have a portion of the garden tower. They should not have devotees and novitiates. They should not have separate rituals and doctrines. They were distortions of the faces of the one God, and they would be crushed out of memory. Soon he would remove these walls, and the sensuals of Ori and the spinsters of Paul would be brought to heel. Not only here on Garden Island, but in all realms. Dunhiln staggered, overcome by the heat. Seeker Yan moved aside so that the Donesmaster could fall unobstructed. Hiln slumped onto the rooftop. Yan scowled at the weakness of the sweating man. Oh, help him up, Highest Flay said. He approached the men, stopping just before the shade pole would block the sun from the fallen Donesmaster. Seeker Yan obeyed, of course, roughly jerking Dunhiln's arm. The man's face was wan, droopy. His lips had gone white. Forgive me, Highest, Hiln said. He had a high, quavering voice even when in good health. Now it was a raspy, creaking sound. It is the champion. He is especially violent with the madness this morning. How can you possibly tell? Flay asked. The champion was violent with madness at all times. Without sleep or sustenance of any kind, he raged in his arena prison. Only an uninterrupted watch of Merculans kept the madman from destroying the tower and everyone on Garden Island. He spoke, Dunhiln said. He wavered and would have collapsed again, but for Seeker Yen's support. Flay stepped forward, his favored followed. Now the shade pole did block the sun from Dunhiln. What did he say? Hiln's eyes rolled up. Seeker Yan slapped his cheek and his eyes came down. He blinked stupidly. Dim Kisk. See to him, Highest Flace said to the Seeker. Keep shade over Dunhiln, favored. The air was cold in the depths beneath Till's tower. Like the roof, it occupied one-fifth of the sublevels of the tower. The old tombs and sarcophagi had long ago been dug out and disposed of, the space was too valuable to waste on the dead. A single great room occupied the bottom three levels of the crypts, an arena of sorts. Flay had built it for acolytes and donesmasters to practice mercosine bolts of fire and lightning in preparation for the war to come. But with the arrival of the champion, it had been given over to one use, as a prison cell. The man lay on a thick wooden table in the center of the huge room, Wrists and ankles and neck clamped in shackles, chains stretched tight to huge rings embedded in the walls. Accommodation for his bodily wastes lay below the table. They were no longer needed, because in an effort to weaken the man, Flay had forbidden him food and drink for a fortnight. It was a testament to the man's insanity and divine blessing that he still lived. Four simple chairs sat around the table, each occupied by a merculin. They sat still as rocks, eyes closed in concentration. They worked in two-hour shifts, focusing their power to maintain control over the madman, the champion. Highest Flay's footsteps resounded from the stone block walls as he crossed the space. Dun Portchalon, an elderly donesmaster who oversaw the quelling teams, accompanied him. The old man shuffled as quickly as he could, but did not manage to keep up. He started mumbling last night, 
Portulan called from behind Flay. Unusual, but not unprecedented. This morning he began to froth and strain with more urgency than usual. His grunts and growls formed into words, very clear words. Dem kisk. Have you asked him about it? Highest Flay said. He stopped well short of the table. The champion's body strained against his shackles, every muscle bulging, veins protruding. The corded muscle and tendons at his neck jutted out with such force that his face had gone purple. Cracked lips pulled back in a snarl, and wide eyes flickered all about, wild with insanity. The man was not young, but he looked like a thickly muscled warrior. Did I ask him, Highest? Dunn Portulan said. The champion is beyond conversation. You may as well ask a wildcat its name. Men always thought they knew things they did not. They believed that a lunatic who had never had a moment's lucidity must always be a lunatic. But that was not Flay's experience. There were few certainties in this world, clouded as it was by the war against the one god. Man was beset by lies. He could not trust even his own senses, and so everything must be questioned. He approached the champion, stopping at a chalked ring roughly sketched on the floor surrounding the straining man. This was the farthest known distance the man could spit. That alone told Flay the man was aware of his captors. Stop your straining, champion, Flay said in tones of absolute command. I would speak to you, man to man. Hard to believe this creature had once been a respectable don'ts master. Harder still to believe he had come to Garden Island by coincidence. Now, the one god's hand was in it, brought by those boys sent by the voluptuary of Starside to be a prisoner at Ori's home. Flay's words had no effect. The champion didn't cease his struggle to break free. The effort was remarkable and depriving him of food and water had not weakened him at all. His body was like a sculptor's depiction of Till himself, gray-headed and bearded, physique carved and full of wrath. The scars of his early whippings had healed and were now mere red lines across his abdomen and chest. Dun Eples, why did you say Dem Kisk? Dun Portulan hissed behind Flay. Apparently he didn't want anyone using the champion's old name. Flay now saw why. The man doubled his efforts, the shackles tearing into his flesh, blood oozing out. The wooden table creaked and the chains thrummed with tension. Flay doubted a team of horses could pull harder than this man did with each of his limbs. He was truly possessed of the one god's power, and if loosed, would rampage until none lived. We will have to add another Merculin to each watch. Dunport Shalin said. His marcusine grows by the day. Good, Highest Flay said. It was not good, but showing concern would merely undermine Dunport Shalin's confidence. Dunipos, listen to me. You are the champion of Till. I am the highest. You must listen and obey. Those we despise grow weak. We can destroy them. But I cannot release you to fulfill your destiny until you show control. Do you understand? In answer, the man shrieked and strained, 
A great tearing noise, like a tree trunk being twisted apart, filled the chamber. With a ringing metallic sound, the chain holding his right arm came free of the wall. It chimed as it blurred through the air. It struck one of the sitting Merculans, making a wet slicing noise as it sent him from his chair. By Till! Dunportchelin cried. He raced to take a seat in the vacant chair, then bowed his head to lend his power to the quelling. Highest Flay felt the man's considerable Mercosine power joining the three remaining sitters as they steadied their control over the madman. The injured Merculin was dead, neck cut nearly all the way through by the force of the chain. Four Donesmasters ran in, shouting and pointing. One held a flask. The others were urging him toward the flailing madman, who now swung his loose chain around like a flail. Highest Flay was urged backward, out of range. It was all very disturbing. Had this fit truly been brought on by using the man's name? This was most troubling indeed. The champion had to be brought under control if he was to face his destiny if he was to finally face the agents of Ori and Paul so that Flay could demolish the evil of the Triumvirate. After assuring the Donesmasters he was quite uninjured, Highest Flay ascended the tower to a different sort of prison. Here his other prized captive lay on her bed, not chained, not struggling. In fact, she had never once moved so much as a finger. She had come to him paralyzed by some unknowable malady, probably brought on by her extraordinary oracular gifts. He had stolen Roya Reth from the way of Ori the day she'd arrived at Docktown. Rather, the Seeker had stolen her. And what a prize she was. She didn't often prophesy, but when she did, her words could be counted on, assuming one could interpret them. She had foretold the arrival of the champion, saying he would be chained at the neck. The boys who had disembarked from that ship had gone to Ori's home. The champion dragged along as some sort of hopeless invalid to be placed under the voluptuary's power. The man had been as docile as a well-fed cow then. Highest Flay had decided to finally act upon thirty years of plans and schemes— to depose the sitting voluptuary and put Ori's tower under his sway. It had required finding just the right woman to become just the right voluptuary, one who would allow the sensuals and novitiates he had planted among them to finally exert control over the home. And now he possessed both the champion and the young Merculin who had come with him, Henley Mast. Ryareth, I would speak to you, he said to the immobile, slack-lipped oracle. Her head was kept shorn, her body kept clean and free of bedsores by favored assigned to her care. The room was freshly aired, blossoms adding a pleasant smell. A window let in ocean breezes and the call of birds. Speak, her voice was soft, a child's voice. Ryareth, you spoke of the champion. He is here. He said Dem Kisk this morning, and his rage increases. Why? Is Dem Kisk coming? She didn't open her eyes. Have you read the words of the Theb? Of course I have. He was the highest of highests. Then you know of Dem Kisk all that has been said. 
he snorted. No one who has read those passages knows what Demkisk means. The woman was childlike, which meant she was often petulant. He'd tried to punish the tone out of her, but she was immune to pain. Only bribes of comfort and treats produced cooperation. There was a bowl of dates next to her bed for just this purpose. He pitted one and fed it to her. She moaned with pleasure, taking her time with it. Is Demkisk upon us? he asked. Scholars assumed it referred to a man, born to hold the fate of mankind in his hands. But to anyone intelligent, the passage was no more than the ravings of a madman. The way of Till taught the common people that Demkisk was a man because people liked to be frightened. The interpretation also fit the way's view that the triumvirate was an untenable construct, a false notion of equality among separate gods. The way of Till had no choice but to accept it during the synod of the new pantheon. They had been weakened by ages of war. But the schemes to undermine the triumvirate had begun before the wax seals on the synod treaty had cooled. Ever since, the ways had connived and manipulated to take greater control over the hearts and minds of men. The way of Till had risen to primacy, and now it was time for the lie of the triumvirate to be dispelled forever. Royareth had prophesied the coming of a champion. What other purpose could such a man serve but to finally put an end to the triumvirate? But the man's mention of Demkisk caused Flay to rethink all of his assumptions. Could it be, perhaps, that the champion had a greater cause? Could he be Demkisk? Or was the champion's purpose to fight Demkisk? Answer me, Oracle. Is Demkisk upon us? Highest Flay urged. Roya Reth recited, You will know Demkisk by the flames, by the charred bone, by the ash. You will know Demkisk by the black feather, the red scale, the parting mist. You will know Demkisk by the fallen tower, the creaking gate, the bone chill. She licked her dry lips and added a phrase not found in the prophecy. Soon it will tread upon fields of red. Highest Flay knew the ancient tongue of Sigil Tyne, knew the literal translation of Dem Kisk was red grass. But who would make the grass red with blood? A man, and the champion would defeat him, must defeat him, and bend him to Till's will. Unless... Frustrated, he leaned over the immobile woman. Is the champion Dem Kisk? No. A small relief washed through him, and yet his gut churned. He couldn't keep the desperation from his voice. Has Demkisk been born? Where is he? Demkisk has always been born, from seed to blade to seed again. Red are the blades of the dying age. I see them waving beneath the sun. This is prophecy to the gods, not from them. Words cannot contain nor the mind apprehend the unconscious will of time. The force of destiny has meter, but alas, no rhyme. 
she was taunting him, one of her favorite pastimes. Realizing she would not give him a straight answer about Demkisk, he decided to pursue other questions. He plucked another date from the bowl next to her bed. With a twist, he tore it open and pulled out the pit. Pressing the sweet fruit to her lips, he said, Why does the champion strain? He is too strong already. He may destroy us before he has a chance to serve us. Every child knows what makes one grow. If you want him to wither, why feed you him so? She accepted the date, chewed it slowly, swallowed slowly. Highest Flay demanded more of her. They hadn't fed Eeples so much as a crumb of bread. But Royal Reth was gone, faded into the somnolent by-world she spent most of her hours wandering. He knew that no bucket of ice water, no lash of the whip, no glowing brand on her skin would rouse her or compel her to speak again. But she had confirmed one thing. Soon it will tread upon fields of red. Dem Kisk was coming. Surely that meant the day he had long sought, the fall of the other ways, was near. Surely. But as he ascended the tower to his apartments, he was troubled by something else she'd said. Why feed you him so? She would not have said that if his orders were being followed in that regard. Someone was slipping the man sustenance. Upon entering his rooms, he sent for Seeker Yen. The man was a zealot and often overeager to deliver Till's punishments on lambs he deemed had strayed too far from the fold. But that made him keenly observant. Flay would instruct Seeker Yan to begin an inquisition into the Merculans charged with keeping the champion restrained. He would discover who was feeding the champion, and then he would make an example of him. But the Seeker did not come. Instead, one of the man's pupils, an acolyte of some Merca's sensitivity, arrived. He bowed deeply. My apologies, Highest. Seeker Yan went to the dock to greet a ship. He said he has sensed a Merculin approaching over the past few weeks, a powerful one. And why did he not tell me of this? The acolyte had no answer and so did not offer one. He merely kept his head down and waited for instructions. Send the seeker to me the moment he returns. Yes, Highest. The acolyte departed swiftly, leaving behind the stink of relief. Highest Flay went to one of his broad windows and looked again at his slice of the island. His favored padded in on quiet slippers, bearing a pitcher of wine. It was too early for it, but he drank down a cup. The warmth washed into his belly, but it did little to soothe him. His conversation with Royal Reth had left him disquieted, for it had rekindled a worry in him. The Theb did not mention the champion of Till. That had been new prophecy from Royal Reth herself. Did that mean there were champions for Paul and Ori, too? Reth had never answered that question.